this week on Dig Me Out. I don't like 10 Story, so if you take 10 Story out of there and you put Daybreak what? at the end, I no, I think 10 Story oh. is a is a oh. sappy, no edge, weak, oh. weak track. You're so cynical. I am. Tim and Jay review Second Coming by the Stone Roses. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 186. We're in season four, and joining us, Jay, for the first time in oh more than a few years since, I guess it's really? been since, uh, since season one, yeah, Mr. Oh. Neil Schmidt, back. 186 is my favorite number. Awesome. How'd that end up being your favorite number? <laughs> uh, when was the last time you joined us, Neil? Was it for, um, was it the Swerve Driver podcast? Uh, have I done one or have I done two? I don't remember. But yeah, it's been a while. But I I'm, think... a listening, I'm listening a lot. Excellent. Excellent. And you are the professor of our podcast. We've had, the, <laughs> we've had directors, we've had producers, we've had uh, musicians, but you are the professor that we bring on to uh, break down the um, various modal uh, scales. And no, uh, what do, what are you up to now, Neil? Tell everybody what your occupation is. Uh, I it, music technology is my forte here at Capital University in Columbus, Ohio. So I live and breathe the uh, the geekery of microphones and techniques and uh, live sound production and the like. So. Yeah, I get into the production of the records quite a bit. Awesome. And Joe, Joe is from Watershed's a professor as well. So there's, a, mm-hmm. there's a... that's right. The the um, previous guest who had the book out. I love Hitless Winter. That's a great read. It was. It was really a lot of fun. A lot of interesting insights and the Jim Steinem stuff, especially, is a lot of fun. Um, so you had suggested uh, via the Twitter. An album that we should check out that's actually been on our list for quite some time of a, a band that we wanted to um, get into. I thought, well, it's a good time. It's been 20 years since this record came out. So how about we check out... I know. <laughs> how about we check out The Stone Roses and their second album, Second Coming. So, Neil, why did you, uh, why'd you suggest this record? Well, that was a great spot for a music cue, so you're going to put that in right there, right? Mm-hmm. Well, everybody we... should know this record from, I think the biggest single in the United States uh, is Love Spreads, which I'll Did you, uh, did you do air quotes around biggest? Because I don't know that anything <laughs> from this record, although I think something did chart. One of the songs did chart, uh, like 55 or something in the top 100. Well, I think Love Spreads got the college radio play because I remember the single being released uh, like as an individual single to stations right. prior to the album. And I think that it was definitely, in terms of the band's overall career in the United States, was the biggest single. Now, their big UK singles were probably different. That's more 10 Story Love Song and um, some of the other songs on the record that we'll get to. But I think in terms of the US, and then in terms of what still gets played on, like, if you were to turn into. Um, uh, like Sirius on their 90s channel, it's probably they're probably going to play either I Want to Be Adored off the first album or they're going to play Love Spreads off of uh, off this record. Mm-hmm. 
sister so what was your what was the impetus for picking this one i had gone through and was uh getting rid of all old cds and i found this tucked away somewhere and uh and it kind of goes to a theme that you're going to be mentioned about but but i remember just being so let down with this record and i owned it and i'm i couldn't other than love spreads i couldn't tell you anything about it so i kind of put it back on and gave it another listen and then it became just one of those things that was sort of stuck in the CD player, so it stayed. And uh, I kind of found a few gems and was like, that probably is worth these guys talking about. And it's a little bit different. Um, it, maybe with the Manic Street Preachers, um, some of the other stuff you talk about, it's a little bit outside of sort of some of the territory, but I thought it would be a, a relevant record as far as a record that really got overlooked um, because it was such a letdown from the, the from the first record, so I thought it was a good topic. Well, that's and that's a good segue into uh, after we talk about this record. Um, towards the end of the show, we're going to get into picking some of our, I guess you'd say, our favorite sophomore albums from the '90s, and then some that were our biggest letdowns of the '90s. That you know, bands had a a record that we liked. And then their their a first album, and then their second album came out, and we were either wowed or completely baffled and disappointed. So, but we're going to get to that after we talk about uh, the Stone Roses, and I think we should probably um, talk a little bit about the history of the band. History of the band. So, for those of you who don't know, the Stone Roses formed in Manchester, England, in 1983. They had some lineup changes between that time and the release of their first record. But the primary lineup of this band is Ian Brown on vocals, John Squire on guitar, uh, the singular named Manny on bass and Rennie on drums. They released uh, two singles and an EP between 1985 and 1988. And then they released their debut self-titled album in 1989 on Silvertone Records, which won the reader's poll for band of the year best new band best single and album of the year from the enemy so it was a big deal when that album came out in 1989 so here's where the trouble starts they decide to leave silvertone because they were unhappy about how they were being paid by the label and the owners of silvertone which was zomba records took out an injunction against the band in uh september of 90 to stop them from signing with another label, uh, which they wanted to sign with Geffen Records. So in May 91, the courts sided with the group and they released from their contract, but uh, Silvertone appealed the ruling. So for another year, they were stuck in limbo, unable to record for Geffen, who had forwarded them a million pounds to start on their next record. They finally got out of the legal troubles and started work on their second album in mid-1993. Um, a couple of people close to the band had passed away, and uh, Ian Brown and John Squire both became fathers, and it slowed down their recording process, which finally resulted in the release of Second Coming in December of 94. The following year, in March of 95, 
uh, two weeks before they were to start touring in support of the album, Rennie left the band. Uh, they found a replacement drummer in Robbie Maddox. And then a year later after that, John Squire quit the band, saying it was the inevitable conclusion to the gradual social and musical separation that we have undergone for the past few years. He was replaced by Simply Red tour guitarist Aziz Ibrahim. And that point, the band was sort of falling apart, and then Brown and Manny dissolved the band in October of 96. After that, uh, Squire formed the Seahorses, who released one album, and then he released a couple solo albums. Brown has released six solo albums, and Manny joined the uh, band Primal Scream. And then in October of 2011, uh, as all bands from the 90s have done, they reformed in a press conference and they've been playing festivals and shows ever since then there's a documentary called made of stone that was released i think a year ago or so and there's rumors of a new record but nothing has surfaced in terms of new recordings yet uh from the band so that's the history of stone roses the sort of very you know compacted history uh, if you would like to suggest an album for us for review please visit our request review page at dig me out podcast.com so we got some facebook feedback on this record uh some interesting opinions i want to dive into here we can all react to some of these opinions carl foss kept it simple he said love Love spreads is one of my favorite songs and is a great 90s alt rock track all right and then colin mart said in my opinion it's one of the worst produced albums ever Yet as huge as Stone Roses fan, I still enjoy as a huge Stone Roses fan, I still enjoy it. The main problem with it is that it feels like the band doesn't know what its identity is, especially given the lofty expectations after their historic debut. The vast difference between songs like Begging You to stuff like Tightrope makes it feel like an album of random songs just thrown together without any unifying theme. Interesting. I don't disagree. You don't disagree? Kimberly McElroy says, I find it an enjoyable album. Nothing really stands out for me, but certainly not mediocre or terrible. That's um, that's a, a theme I'd like to explore a little bit. And then Joe Royland says, with all the time taken between their debut and this album, all the hassles, legal and otherwise, they had to endure during that period. There was just no way this album was ever going to live up to the hype surrounding it, aside from the fact that a lot of their audience had simply moved on. Still, I dig the album. Squire's guitar playing. It's one of the things that always drew me to the band. So tunes that heavily feature it, like Love Spreads, Breaking Into Heaven, Driving South, make it worth the price of admission for me. Also really like 10 Story Love Song, which I believe was the second single off the album. So let's talk about let's talk about what we liked and what we did not like about this record. Because I, I feel like a track by track would take probably two or three hours because um, some of these songs are pretty long. Um, but let's go what we liked and what we didn't like. I want to start out, Neil, you mentioned about revisiting this record. Tell me when you revisit it, what did you, what did you find that you liked about the record? Um, well, I, I agree with, uh, what are you saying that, and sometimes it sounds random and going back and thinking about the, doing some research on the history and that I even watched that documentary. It's on YouTube and Gareth Evans, I think is their manager is a sight to behold. He's everything. When you think about smarmy music managers, he's, he's all that, <laughs> um, really, really unbelievably awful character. But when they, they had the lawsuit and they weren't allowed to, they, they weren't supposed to 
uh, record for anyone else, and they weren't supposed to release any music, and then they had that Sally Cinnamon debacle and, and uh, painting of, of the office. But that doesn't mean you can't not write, and, and it seems like there was uh, they went in the studio, and a lot of this stuff was generated in the studio. So it, you know, if you had five years to record your sophomore record, or as my buddy Valentine has had many, many years, you know, you would you would think you'd be able to weed through you know 30 40 songs and find some good ones um what i liked were the songs that were probably closest to uh the original record that had sort of the up tempo a little or that i i didn't mind them getting away from that beat but the 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 hooks had to be really strong which was what made the first great record so great i mean there's tempo shifts you know things speed up over time it's not necessarily a technical record um, and John Squire's guitar playing is really pretty interesting at times on this record, but other times that like, there's just some, like some bad transitions and it just sounds like, and this is the song they recorded when they were all stoned out of their gourds and it just doesn't work. <laughs> and, uh, so there's this mix of this one's working and this one, maybe we worked it out live and we could, we could see the crowd getting into this faster slow it's not like the i am the resurrection is a dance song by any means right it's got this kind of cool doo, 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 you know really kind of subdued um but it's got this hauntingness and in this uh really sort of uh sort of uh i, wanna, I don't want to say ethereal but it really sort of touches you and it's got this kind of quality and the other stuff just sounds like yeah hey, i'll throw a vocal down let's call that song done um so uh but you definitely uh, some of the cooler production stuff, you know, there's like just piano chords and backwards guitars and they were real. I mean, still the idea of them playing with loops in the, in the early nineties is still really, really, uh, in an infantile stage. Um, you know, they're using, uh, hard rack mount samplers that might have 19 or 20 seconds of sampling and you need two of them if you want to sample in stereo. And it's a really, so the idea that they were doing this stuff by, you know, uh, and yeah, obviously hip hop production and stuff is going on, but live drummers and musicians playing over top of these loops is still a pretty big deal. So that kind of gets lost in the idea that there's something that's that old at that early nineties, you know, sound tools had just come out in 92, mm-hmm. 93, you know, so this idea that you could edit audio on a computer. And I think some of the artwork is even, um, from one of the singles is uh, a bunch of floppy disks that they were trying to learn music on the computer. And he's like, just never mind," and ripped them up and made a big art project out of all the sound, out of all the floppy disks. So it was just archaic. Um, you know, this is not how you make music in 94, 95. So, right. Um, so I, you know, there, there's definitely some really, really great tracks. Um, but they don't make it easy for the listener with song number one, breaking no. into heaven. No, that's 11 <laughs> minutes of difficulty. Or well, I should say it's like it's like five minutes, and then you finally get to the song, and you're like, "Oh, okay." Could have been two tracks. Could have separated that and made it easy to just skip. But uh, in the CD age of 
were you guys coming into this record pretty clean? Is this? Did you have any his, history with the band of? Uh, I mean, I mean, I, I would know you think you guys knew both who they were, but as far as like, oh yeah, I love I Am the Resurrection and Elephant Stone and all that. Difference. Jay, why don't you start? Uh, not really. I knew I want to be adored somehow, but other than that, I wasn't really that familiar with the sound of the band. I was familiar with the name of the band and some of the history stuff, and I knew that they were sort of a Manchester band, and I knew actually I knew um, Love Spreads once I listened to the record. Okay. Um, I think that got significant airplay somewhere. Um, WFAL. Have, uh, okay, well, I didn't listen to WFAL that much, but I've, I've heard this song a lot. So some radio station, either in Toledo or Cleveland, was playing the hell out of it Yeah. Um, during this time. I don't know if they were playing all five minutes and 47 seconds, but they were playing it. The way I came into this band was two different ways, um, and they're both really late. I think. Well, the, actually, the original was the single, which I never explored anything beyond Love Spreads when it when it came out um, back in 94 when we had it at the radio station. I didn't know about I Want to Be Adored until I heard the Year of the Rabbit cover of it, uh, which was the Ken Andrews band after Failure, and he did a solo project on, and then he formed Year of the Rabbit, and he put out an EP, and it featured a cover of I Want to Be Adored. Um, and that's how I sort of... I went, oh, what is this song? And then I discovered uh, Stone Roses. And then I read a document or read a book about the Manic Street Preachers. And they talked about how they were, when they formed and were playing their first album, they hated the Manchester bands. These like the baggy pants, Happy mm-hmm. Mondays, you know, dancey, you know, uh, psychedelic bands. So they were like the anti Happy Monday Stone Roses band, even though they sent it sort of took on that sound a little bit on their second record so both of my entry points in reality were like kind of at odd angles to discovering this band it was for, through other bands was just and i've gone back and i've listened to the first record once or twice it doesn't really connect with me um i think the way it does with some other people the I, first I record think they're so good i i think that there are some interesting songs but i just there's something about ian and we'll get into this one as we go through the album, but uh, there's something about Ian Brown's voice that I don't particularly care for. I'm not sure what it is. But, Jay, before we get into that, because that's a what I don't like section, what was something <laughs> that you liked about this uh, this record? Uh, I liked it, and I also struggled with it a little bit. Um, I, I was really shocked about how, uh, how much blues guitar there was on this. Um, mm-hmm both from a sort of classic rock reinterpretation standpoint, but also at times sounding almost, you know, pretty authentic. Um, so driving South, um, and, a great uh, track for the guitar. Yeah. 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 And love spreads, um, heavy, just, I don't know if it's open G tuning or what, but it's, you know, heavy blues bass guitar, uh, riff. And that's something that with a lot of the Manchester bands, I wouldn't necessarily, have thought at least to the point of like they really get it and there's a you know strong musicianship to it um they're not just playing chords you know there's a lot of licks there's a lot of riffs there's solos there's just a lot of good guitar work um on a couple of the the tracks in this record um one of the things though about it that i struggle with is that um those two songs in particular use a lot of um licks and progressions directly from 
like songs like Moby Dick from Led Zeppelin that, you know, it's to the point where it's, it's almost, I can imagine the guitar player was learning how to play that song and then sort of evolved <laughs> jamming that into his own song. <laughs> I think that's how um, a lot of guitar players write songs, right? Yeah. But it's to the point where I like, I can hear it. You know what yeah, I mean? Like I'm distracted by it. Like I, I want, it makes me want to go listen to Led Zeppelin, which is oh. not, I think the, the intent that they're going for, but uh, you know, uh, the thing that, that does save it, I think is that especially in the case of driving South, that they match it with a drum machine. Um, you know, I think if they would have used a real drummer on that song, it would have gotten too far into the classic rock Led Zeppelin, you know, territory, but because they use that driving drum loop or drum machine or whatever they're using there, it, it elevates it to something different. I think that's, I think that's him playing drums with the loop. I think that's oh, okay. That's that's what I was kind of getting at. They were they were kind of really experimenting. Fool's Gold was the really the one that was all kind of drum loop, and then but he Rennie got really good um, at playing over top that drum machine. So. Yeah, and I think it, it creates something unique, and it it saves it from being completely derivative from a. If you just listen to the guitar from a guitar standpoint, you know, um, and I it might feel that a, way, but it's a really interesting because it never gets to that top of the mountain Robert Plant like grandiose vocal. Mm. You know that right. that that's one of the things that kind of so that that groove that that groove. Um, but yeah, driving south was a pretty different uh, uh, approach to the guitar for from the first record. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I love cranking that. When I was listening to this record, I loved cranking that up in the car. It's a good driving tune. I just was driving to it today. And I'll just chime in with the guitar playing on this record is, I think, the highlight. Squire is able to like take those 70s big arena rock influences, like you mentioned Zeppelin and some other bands, and do some interesting things that incorporate the... I don't even. I don't want to say funk, but there's some jazzy influences in his playing that are pretty unique, and especially for 1994, you know, that's the first breakthrough of like Oasis and Blur, and there couldn't be anything less jazzy than those bands in terms of Britpop. So I almost feel like, in terms of his playing, he was going in a you know a completely different, total, totally different direction in terms of what he was interested in and what he was influenced by at that time um he wasn't just playing these like big pub rock songs or these sort of uh very british sounding songs he was incorporating a lot of different sounds into his guitar playing and you can hear that from there's that tear has that like it has like a jazzy feel to that song um and how do you sleep has that sort of like bassa nova thing going on with the guitar playing and the rhythm section and it's just you would not hear that from any of those bands back in 94, which I think is, it's both a positive and a negative because it's, it's so stamps this as being a oddball in comparison to those bands at that time. Tear um, is very close to over the hills and far away by Led Zeppelin. 
I, I was a being those two together and the, even the picking intro and then the they don't do the dramatic like stops like Zeppelin does, but um, it's very much the same progression and um, sort of, you know, concept. Reverb, 12 string, picking guitar. Yeah. Like it's, you can almost start to hear that come out of the Stone Roses song, but they don't quite go there. Like they pull it back a little bit. So it's a little bit, it, you know, flows a little bit more. It's not as like, you know, staccato as the Zeppelin thing, but it's in there. <laughs> well, I wonder if part of the issue with, you know, Neil mentioned that this, this is a band that didn't seem to be writing is that they didn't also play live for four of the five years in between records. They were just oh. not doing anything because of this whole legal issue. So I wonder if they weren't even getting together to jam and sort of, and this was kind of cobbled together at the last minute. Because, you know, they started recording in mid-1993, and then this album comes out in 94. Um, it's not a lot of time. Even though there was a lot of time between records, there wasn't a lot of time between when they actually started re- writing and recording for this album. Um, and I'm wondering if that's part of the issue, is that they sort of fell back on a lot of, especially Squire in terms of his guitar playing, sort of fell back on a lot of like stuff that he was either already familiar with or was listening to at the time so that the influences become more blatant. He, he probably spent five years in his room practice, practicing guitar to classic rock records and then <laughs> showed up to write the, the album and he's like, well, this is what I've been playing, so I don't know. Let's write something around this. This is a little I, song by Led Zeppelin. Because what I, I know... I, see, but, I was going to say, because what I know, the most memorable tracks from the first record, I Want to Be Adored and, and Fool's Gold, those are the ones that stick out of my mind. They don't sound like this. No. I mean... They are a completely different world than these songs. So something happened with him specifically that made him want to write, you know, Over in the Hills Far Over the Hills and Far Away Part Two or, you know, Moby Dick Part Two. Something something happened there. This is a different sound completely. Well, I think there's uh going back to the two sides of, you know, they were in this injunction they couldn't they weren't allowed to basically be a band. So part of me says like, well, you could still, you guys all got together. You could still go in the basement. But part of it, the other part of me says like, well, what's the point? If we can't record, we can't play, you know, we could write great songs that are great right now. You know, what's the point? But I think other, mm-hmm. the other, to the, the other thing, like, I think there's definitely, um, you know, from growing to the second record, you know, the you kind of mentioned you know there's the baggy clothes of that scene and the floppiness and the the rave culture and they were all part of that and part of it might be like you know what let's add a, let's, get, let's let's get a little muscle you know and and the kind of strip some of the effects away and like you know definitely like the first record has tons of wah wah guitar and now it's like well let's click off the wah and let me put the slide on my you know and do some some something a little more not nasty tone wise. Maybe that's a response of mm-hmm. you know here's something else that's going on. Plus by that point you've already had grunge kind of happening. You know that's that certainly had to be a, impact a little bit of of the energy behind that whole movement. You know between these records of just like raw power and volume. So you know I don't I wish it would be, you know it would be interesting if they had dates when different songs were recorded you know how that would be yeah relevant at all there's a stark contrast between um the songs that i think have that muscle and then the ones that don't um and then there's a 
there's a mixture of like weird other types of songs that are either acoustic or acapella or just you know experimental and they're the ones that are um more the blues funk based like the full band feel like straight to the man or daybreak um where they kind of pull back they don't have the muscle they 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 are more restrained and they don't play as hard and those ones really do not work for me like it just makes me think of like the hippy dippy kind of like it almost (laughs) feels like jam bandy without the jamming you know like oh i I couldn't take those those tracks i I would Uh, way rather hear them be weird and experimental than than do that I, I would agree. And that goes back to that Facebook feedback that you read. It's just kind of the disparate elements going on. Um, one of the songs that really stuck out when I gave this uh, a, a revisit listen was track seven, Begging You. Kind of a cool segue between the first and second record, but that just has some really cool production elements, and just it's got that kind of really driving groove. It's got some energy that it kind of reaches out of the speakers a little bit. Mm-hmm. Where I think mm-hmm. some of the song tracks you're talking about, Jason, they're just like laying there in the speakers, and you're like, "Go mm-hmm. away," you know, like. <laughs> yeah, those songs could be from like any guitar player, like jazz, blues guitar player album <laughs> from the '90s. You know? Yeah. Begging but You yeah, sounds like, the, like a remix of a song. Like it's it's almost out of place on the rest of the record because it's so energetic. It sounds like, you know, somebody took that song and did a remix of it. I love it. And the it. guitars and it's are even... like severely affected, which are cool. Mm-hmm. Like it almost doesn't sound like guitar. It's, I don't no, know, it's, and, it's got, and that's got the, dr- the drum loop and the drummer going on top of it. Lots of really interesting. That was a song like, oh, that's kind of a, really awesome track that i i mean the singles had stuck with me after this record and i really probably haven't listened to it in 18 years and uh but that was one i'm like yeah that one's that one stuck through and i think that one's definitely a highlight for me on the track on the record there's a couple pop obviously pop songs on here too that that i enjoyed that i think potentially could have worked uh, on a different record uh 10 story love song and uh how do you sleep i think are both like it's 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 amazing. They're like everybody on those songs is playing for the song. Like nobody's, there's no jamming. There's no like sections that are rhythm based. There's no experimentation. It's all like, okay, we got a good pop song here. Everybody, let's just build around this. Let's play off the melodies. Let's, you know, be tight and concise. But they, on this record, almost feel like, where the hell did this come from? <laughs> like it's good, but 
it, it's so strange uh, in comparison to some of the other material. It almost sounds like a different band. On the flip side, a song that tries to do that but I think fails to me is, and I have to skip it now, is the song Good Times. Yeah. How do you get Oh, yeah. It's it's Good just time, it's mediocre. Baby. Oh God! I think oh, one of the failures of this record is that over half the material is just kind of mediocre. Like for a band that was set up to be these gods after the first record, and then you come in on this one, it and just who titled sounds like, the record Second Coming. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was going to mention that, but <laughs> they, there's just like half the songs that sound like anybody could have done them. Like Jay said, any guitar player could have been playing these these songs. They sound like generic guitar songs there's just a kind of a lackadaisical kind of approach to some of these tracks where you're just like oh hum it's just kind of laying there it doesn't really do anything it's not it's not energetic it's not moving and the songs that have the energy and albeit completely different energy from the first record at least there's an energy there they're so blatantly better than the other half of the record that it's it's almost a complete split between one half the record and the other. Yeah, I, and I think it, I, there's some sequencing issues when you when I listen to it in yes. order that I, I'm not a big fan of as well. Uh, one of the things I also read that, um, I don't know if you guys checked it out or if you knew, so then John Squire, and you mentioned the history of the band, John Squire um, left and then formed, gr- kind of grabbed Three Unknowns and joined, uh, created the Seahorses, mm-hmm. who, had, who had a minor hit with Love is the Law, which is a really, really great pop song. And reading some of the, um, I know Jay, you kind of stay away from it, but I, I was enjoying kind of going back and digging through stuff. And th- there was someone that had mentioned that actually the Stone Roses had demoed the song "Love Is the Law," but they, but John decided not; he didn't want to do it. And he was writing, I think he was John Squire was also writing a lot of the lyrics at this point as well. Um, but that song, if you t- if you took "Love Is the Law," which totally, if you listen to that song, and if you wanted to play a snippet right here, that would be great. The, if I have that record. <laughs> Well, the it fits right in with ten story love song and loves. I mean, it would be like oh, I mean, it would just be you could create this juggernaut of just pop bliss. You know, then maybe pull out a couple of the other songs towards the back end of the record or something like that. But man, that would be kind of a linchpin song that, if, if it had been on this record, would have been probably put the record back into being considered as opposed to us having to reconsider it. <laughs> right. I, I think I actually own that Seahorses record at one point because I was so into buying every obscure 90s British 
rock band, you know, whether it was Marion or Gene or whatever they were, Gay Dad, you know, every single possible uh, <laughs> British band from the 90s. Yeah, there was a band called Gay Dad, a British band. And you had to have the record. And I had to have the record. Jay, I think you had that record too. I don't have it. I'm going through my, <laughs> I'm going through my music right now. Trust me, I do not have that. Uh, I think you might have at some point purchased Gay Dad. Don't try to make it okay. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Any other thoughts that we want to get into before we do a rating and then talk and then move into our discussion? Anything else we want to throw into this pot of the last, mediocreness? I do. the The last thing that I wish that I that would have happened, and so John Squire really. Uh, grew the rhythm section was already pretty uh interesting rhythm section um from the first two records and when they click they really click i think they 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 really did their job and i always liked rennie as a as a drummer um and he always wore these floppy hats so you never knew really what he looked like and all this kind of weird stuff and even in the documentary he's wearing these weird do-rags i'm like what is going on he must really hate his hair uh <laughs> But one of the things that doesn't happen that I wish had happened is I really, and I don't own um, any of the uh, solo records, um, but I really would have loved to hear the vocals. Uh, maybe something new had happened with the vocals on this record. Um, you know, you know, Billy Corgan's got a couple of his different sounds that he puts together to make the Smashing Pumpkins. There's the whiny and there's the quiet and there's the scream. And he's got, you know, and Robert Smith does all these really kind of cool harmonies. And then he works with Ross Robinson to do this really hard record and they pull all those harmonies out. And to me, it didn't really work, but at least he's trying something like, I really wish something had, there had been some experimentation and maybe I missed it. I know there's a couple high harmonies and stuff, but it really would have been interesting to, to, for him to push his vocals. I think he was really kind of, resting on his laurels for this record and and when it works in driving south 10 story love song love spreads um begging you it works and then other times it's like eh, maybe this was a time to to figure something to push your to push the envelope on his voice a little bit yeah i'll second that i, I found that the vocals were really really disappointing in terms of just not going anywhere just you know, we uh, last couple records that we've reviewed, a um, couple of Australian bands, they they were vocalists who took chances, who weren't afraid to like get out of their comfort zone and sing in in uh, you know more energetic ways on certain songs or more subdued ways in other songs, and really explore. Even if it meant them losing their, you know, staying out of or, or getting out of key for a, a moment. I'm okay with that if you're trying and you're doing something interesting. Whereas I feel like Ian Brown and I feel like this is him encapsulated is like, he just feels like a guy who is comfortable in the groove. And then that's about it. And I tried to listen to some of his solo stuff and it feels a lot of the same way where it's all just sort of this mid tempo uh, groove. That's with that sort of standardized nineties, beat that a lot of the songs have that some of the songs on here have that just feels like I, I know there's a voice there, but it just doesn't want to do anything. It's just very lazy. If you go back to the first record, um, the song, this is the one is a really interesting, both rhythmically song instrumentation wise. And Ian's using his voice from a whisper to a pretty loud as the song, like not a scream, but as about as loud as he's going to get. And that's a really like 
it really kind of shows he's got a limited range, but at least there is a range. It really is going from this super small whisper, like this one kind of really thing. And this one, like, does push that envelope lower or, or harder either way. So I really, whereas I think some of the guitar playing and some of the other stuff really was like, oh, we're, I've, I've been practicing. Gotcha. Jay, anything else? No, uh, there was one other song that, re- that I reminded me of uh, a Beatles song. It was, it's fun to A-B these. Your Star Will Shine is uh, Norwegian Wood. <laughs> is that the, so. It's like that hippie-ish spaghetti western thing going on. It's like uh, there's like a sitar mixed in with a tw- with like a twelve string. Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, it's not. That's not too far off. Let's talk I about like, our ratings. Like you like that song? Neil? I like that. Song, yeah, I like. Though. I like the song. Yeah, it just it's very close to Norwegian Wood. Were the album better EP or a decent single? Uh, Neil, where are you at with this record? E- EP all the way. There's. Uh, five awesome tunes on this that in maybe six um and if it, you added your star will shine and maybe one other two you know good ep i i agree with you i think there's an ep here i don't know if we'd have the same songs necessarily because i actually kind of like daybreak um i think it's the one sort of groove oriented song that works for this band i think some of the other Ugh. ones are okay that's <laughs> I mean, I'm right there with you at Driving South and Begging You and Love Spreads. I like Tightrope. Daybreak after 10 Story Love Song is the worst transition ever. (laughs) Yeah. But that's the thing. I don't like 10 Story. So if you take 10 Story out of there and you put Daybreak at the end, I know. I think 10 Story is a a sappy, no edge, weak track. You're so cynical. I am. I am. I want. I think this is a this is a heavy EP with you throw daybreak and tightrope at the end at the second half of the EP, and this is that's about it. There's J-U. no surefire set solutions, nor sh- no shortcut <laughs> through the trees, no breaching the wall that they put there to keep you from me. That's a great lyric, man. Ah. Tim has horrible <laughs> taste. I think there's uh, it's an EP, but I think it's actually two EPs. So I'm thinking like three, four Ooh. songs because I still struggle with, I want to put driving South. I want to put love spreads and I will put like begging you and maybe one other tune on an EP. And then I want to have a different EP that has 10 story love song and maybe uh your star will shine. And um, how do you sleep? And maybe the, what's the one that's like acapella almost like mostly just vocal. I think tightrope, tightrope. put those, yep. put those songs together. I think there's like six, six to seven you know, good songs that that are kind of disparate. They're not necessarily close enough to put them together onto one EP, though. That's my problem. And gotcha. if that rec- this record was coming out now, that might have not been a bad marketing way to handle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's not what was happening. I mean, these guys did remixes at the Yin Yang and 12-inch singles, and they were putting out dance remixes and everything. But there's no one that would... They would never have done that at the time, especially after that long await. But... You know, the way that records are being released now and, and singles and, you know, people going to that, that that really is probably a really pretty smart marketing ploy or, you know, solution to handle that. So this album caused a, a little bit of a discussion um, as we were figuring out what we wanted to talk about on this record last week, uh, Jay and I. And we decided we want to break it off into its own discussion, which is 
second albums from bands. This is a perfect example. Second albums from bands that had expectations behind them. So like you have a band, they have a successful first record, whether that was, this is the first record was in the 89 and then the second album was in the nineties. You know, if that happens with one of our picks, that's fine. But, uh, and then there, there was, so there's some sort of an expectation that the second record is, is going to be something. It's not an unknown band, you know, throwing out a second record, but, because there's not really expectations to be, you know, connected to it. But a band that put out a second record in the 90s and then either blew expectations out of the water or completely biffed it. And I'm curious um, what you guys picked. I want to I start with a band that I think completely blew away expectations on their second record. Um, they had a single off the first record that, that did really well. One of those bands that you think, okay, that's it. They had their hit single... And, you know, there was a million bands that had one big single in the 90s and then maybe a couple other small singles. Uh, but the second record came out and it had probably five big singles. And it started what I think is one of the greatest three, probably three album runs for any band. And that's Radiohead. Their second album, The Bends, I don't know that anybody would thought that a band that wrote Creep, which was basically a grunge song, you know, with the dynamics of a Pixies track. Uh, was going to release an album that had Fake Plastic Trees and Planet Telex and High and Dry and all these just single after single after single off that record. And then they make OK Computer. And then they make Kid A. Three completely different records, three amazing records. But that, to me, is probably one of the ultimate second album blow them out of the water uh, bands of the 90s. I'm curious what you guys have or if you disagree or agree with that pick no I, that's a good one i remember um when creep was big thinking oh I, like i like the song but you know it, it just seemed like another radio hit and at that time there was just it started i think the first wave of labels throwing bands at the radio trying to get hits and then you could already see them disappearing and i just assumed that that band would go away i, didn't, I never would imagine they'd had the career that they have had based on that song right so that's a good one um i'll throw one in um I looked at it a little bit different than than the way you set it up. I, I thought about it as, in terms of um, you know, looking at bands where the second album is clearly the best of all the albums. So I have um, Foo Fighters. And I think mm. you can kind of throw it in with uh, with Radiohead. Like when that first record came out, first it, it was, it was a novelty of like, oh, this is a drummer from Nirvana. He can play all these instruments and sing. It's okay. He's kind of talented, but the first record's you know it, it's okay, but it's it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't clue you into how talented a, a guy Dave Grohl is. And then the second record comes out and songs like Hero and Monkey Wrench and it's like a whole other level of intensity and kind of reinvented, I think, what, you know, commercial modern rock would sound like. And I think that's to this day still their, probably their strongest record, even though they've done some stuff that's way worse than that and done some others that where singles are, are, you know, of that cal uh, caliber or quality, but I still think that second record is uh, pretty remarkable. That's a great pick. It's a good one. I have a uh, a couple. So n Nevermind is sort of off the table. I mean, but I think that's a <laughs> worth mentioning, right? Pixies Doolittle is obviously um, a good one. I, uh, I, I was thinking Pavement's Crooked Rain um, was one, but um, the one record that, 
later in my production career, but but really um, opened my eyes to some different stuff. And I had sort of dismissed as a solo artist uh, when uh, with the single, and someone's like, I haven't even never even checked out the first record. But Fiona Apple's "When the Pawn" record was was a really really strong statement artistic statement um with john brian and the producer chair and just really you know i kind of what you said about um creep um that i was thinking about fiona apple with um criminal i think was the no what was the uh, what was her first single uh, but uh, the first radio single and i was like eh you know and then when the pawn came out and was like oh wait wait there's way more there than than what I was thinking. So yeah, that's a great that's a great pick because I don't think anybody expected there were you know a lot of really great female artists during the '90s, but a lot of them came and went after their first record, and Fiona Apple didn't necessarily have anything that you thought oh well she's definitely going to be you know this awesome career artist the way that that second album and even I, I think that the uh, the one that came out a couple years ago like half that record is just astounding there's a lot of stuff that john bryan did and then uh ended up leaving the record but yeah that's a great that's a great pick so we have to get into the second half of this which is bands that built up our expectations and then took a big dump on those expectations um i'm gonna i'm gonna start where we finished (laughs) neil what was what was a band that you were like i can't wait for the second record to come out and then they went oh this is this is bad. This one's um, hard. You know, uh, we were talking about, but but this, and I, it's not because we're just talking about it, but, but I think I might have said this anyway. This Stone Rose's second coming record was just, I like it better now than I did when it came out. And I would have, you know, three weeks ago, if you'd asked me, or four weeks ago before I found that record, you know, like I would that would have been maybe at the top, one of the records that would have been on my list. Give me a second, Jay. Do you if you have one? I'll, I'll, let me give me a second to think about it. Well, I found this. I found this one way harder than the other one, um, just because um, a lot of these bands I didn't I didn't always discover them on the first record, so it was tough to like I set it up the way that you're saying to them. Right. And then a lot of them that I was coming up with are bands that I don't necessarily like now, but they were commercial and showed some promise. And then the second record came out and they just nosedived. Um, so some that popped to mind that I just remember, you know, getting a lot of hype and getting a lot of airplay for either one single or two would be a uh, candle box. <laughs> I mean, they had like what three, four big radio hits off the first yeah. record. And then the second record came out and it was just nothing like absolute career over done. <laughs> like the band didn't break up, you know, it wasn't like somebody left or anything. It was just a bad second record. Uh, and it just it ended um and another band that came to mind was in the same category was uh dishwalla like i think they had two maybe two uh or maybe even three singles that were on the radio and the second record came out and it was just complete silence nothing there and then uh, there were a couple that i particularly like um and went back and looked at just the catalog um to see you know second albums that i thought were probably the weakest and uh, the helicopters came to mind. Um, I think the second record, Paying the Dues, is always overlooked. And for me, the one I listen to the least and probably the one the fans talk about the least. Um, it doesn't have the urgency of the first record and sort of the 
uh, motorhead sort of energy to it, and it doesn't have the the polish of some of the later records and all the hooks. So it's sort of a no man's land. Does this need to stay '90s, or can it be any record? No, we're trying to go '90s bands from the '90s because that's what you know the podcast is about. Throw it out oh, there. It what do you got? What do you got? Well, the second MGMT record, and uh, I thought was pretty not interesting. Oh yeah, that's a horrible record. That's absolutely horrible. I agree. <laughs> so, um, geez, if we if we went in recent times, I would, I would my list would be a billion long. Oh yeah, I would have like Interpol on there and. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, the first, what, that no. second Interpol record is boring. So this could almost be a break off, uh, interesting uh, podcast in between there. But that's interesting that uh, that why do you think that is, Jay? That it's more modern that that list would be so much longer. Is it because you're because you're starting with the first record and then coming in the second record? Do you think for the reason you describe? It could be. I also think that um, uh, in the '90s, even though there, we did go through the the period of you know um, where labels in the middle mid '90s started signing a billion bands and and you know getting a hit and moving on. There was still some artist development going on, so when I the the uh, what made the first question tough was that I found a lot of bands had strong first and second records. So, like Pearl Jam, you know, great example. Like the first two records are the ones that basically made their whole career. The two that sold the most, Alice in Chains, same thing. First two records were the ones that made their career. Like one's not better than the other. Both huge. Like you could go on and on. I think in the recent times it seems like you got bands who spend a lot of time writing that first record and then when it comes time to do the second one they just have nothing um the killers comes to mind i think the first killers record is like a perfect pop radio rock record like songs are great the band sounds completely original second record they're like trying to be bruce springsteen and like i don't know what like wandered around doing like a concept record it's just awful i just think uh there's less less development and like just you know i think there's um it goes back to the the old thing of you know sophomore slump you put all your energy into the first record and the second record and you basically have no material and uh you get rushed into making the record faster than you want to and you have a a turd a couple that i want to mention jay you already mentioned one of them which was the candlebox record you know i understand that's Looking back, that's not, Candlebox is not necessarily the most revered band of the '90s alternative and, and grunge uh, era, but that you can't deny that the first album, just in terms of the songwriting, was just way better. Um, from oh, yeah. a, yeah. I mean, from Far Behind to You to whatever you want, those were really good rock radio singles. Mm-hmm. And the second record is like one of the biggest turds in terms of. There's there's no energy to those songs. There's for some reason, and I don't know why, but he almost plays the same style of guitar on every song, which is he plays a, a bar chord and then does an arpeggio off of it. Mm-hmm. And it was when I was learning to play guitar. So I was like figuring out the songs and going, wait a minute, he's doing the same thing on every song. He's just playing a chord and then <laughs> and then are doing an arpeggio. And it, it like it actually made me mad that it was so yeah. easy to figure out that record. And supposedly they they recorded like 35, 36 songs or something for that record. Um, but it's it's just awful. <coughs> the singles are terrible. It's a it's just a boring record. Um, the second and I again this is not a band that's like thought of it in a very high regard. But the Gin Blossoms, the Gin Blossoms had like five singles off that first record. 
Hey yeah. Misery or Hey Jealousy is a really good power pop song. If you mm-hmm. if you didn't know it was the Gin Blossoms, you would just think it was a really good, you know, power pop song. The second album is terrible. I mean, it's just awful. And it's partly yeah. because the guitar player was gone and he was kicked out of the band and then later committed suicide. And he had written all the good songs off the first record. Another one I wanted to mention was Elastica. Um, that first record, that first Elastica record, oh, really yeah. a lot of good singles. And then that second album that they put out, which actually came out in 2000, just did nothing. I mean, just yeah. just a boring nothing record. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, the biggest, which we don't really need to mention other than Hooting the Blowfish. I mean, it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible record, but the amount of, I mean, yeah. they sold like a billion records, and then that second album came out, and it's got to be one of the biggest declines in album sales from first album to second album in pop music history. I think in the 90s, you even had bands that were making their best record on their third record. I mean, think about the Afghan Wigs. I mean, mm-hmm. Gentlemen is their third record. Um, look at uh, oh, I had another one. Radiohead's OK Computer. Yeah, you could argue that. Um, I know there's a a division in you know the fan base whether it's people who like radio the bands or OK Computer is their favorite record. But yeah, third in, record in, is definitely. In, in, in Utero is a super strong record. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is um is Bad Motor Finger the third Soundgarden record? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Louder than Love. Um. Oh shit. There's one before that. Yeah. All so. Right. There are a lot of bands that it took them three albums to, but you know, three albums now you don't find you can get three albums to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, that's by then you're saying, on your own yeah. label. Yeah, self exactly. Right. You're gonna go on a date with me to go see the Jim Blossoms when they play here in Columbus, Tim. <laughs> when when is that? When is that? August is that free? August twenty first, free concert at the Commons. Ooh, anybody else on that? Is it like is it like a package tour dig, with like it's Everclear? The dig me out date. No, but we should auction off the Dig Me Out date night. <laughs> I might have to do that. I might have to figure that one out. You and Tim will sidle up to a local food truck and enjoy some <laughs> nosh on some delicious edibles. It'll spread out the blanket. And you'll talk some '90s trivia, and then the Gin Blossoms, whatever incarnation, will come out and play the hits for you. That's or live re- yeah. live remote. Dig me out on location. Well, they're they're we're working on that for for uh for next year about doing a, a live nice. one. But we're uh still working out the details. Might might involve South by Southwest. This, Ooh, all right. You know, it's the twenty fifth it's the twentieth anniversary of nineteen ninety five. There are about a billion records from nineteen ninety five that are worth discussing. Nice. So everything from uh Teenage Fan Club's Grand Prix to God Live on God Lives Underwater's Empty. I mean, the the possibilities are endless. Teenage Fan Club's When did Gay Dad come out? I want to. <laughs> when did what Teenage come out? Gay Dad. Oh, Gay. I think that's like '99. I'm oh. telling you, Jay, you own that record. I don't own the record, dude. You I did, remember the son. band name after you mentioned it, but I don't own it. I'm looking at my uh, my Amazon account right now, and it's not in there. I would no. tell you if it I did. think you got rid of the record before the Amazon thing <laughs> happened. Why did uh, up teenage, teenage Fan Club was another disappointing second record. Yeah. In terms of what the expectations were of the first one. Yeah. That's true. It's like, you know, a lot of those records are just gone because they put them out of my memory, you know? Well, I think we have covered the uh, the second album syndrome. 
whether it be a positive or a negative, the sophomore slump or the sophomore explosion. We need to thank our guest for this week, Neil. It's been too long. We should not uh, go so long between guest spots in the future. We'll have to get you on in a uh, in a regular spot. Do you have any other records that you would might want us to review in the upcoming weeks or months that you uh, have on your on your plate, or was this just a uh, random? No. Oh no, this is a good one. I've got. I mean, I'm a '90s kid, I, and I were like you guys worked college radio in the '90s. So there's all sorts of great uh, records that I have, and some of those records I only have on vinyl uh, because all the radio stations were dumping their records and going to CDs. So I picked up a lot of stuff either free or cheap. Um, no, there's a couple bands that I like that might not be bands that you know. Um, there's a band called uh, Something Happens. Um, that I like the first record a lot, and that second record may be fun or that disappointing count. Um, there's also another band that came through Athens a lot that um, we were all friends with, and there's a couple different records you could pick with, a band called The Mommy Heads. Yeah, um, I've heard The Mommy Heads. Okay, so those would be other records that, that I would be interested in coming back and talking. Cool. Well, I'm sure we can find some time to get into one of those by the end of the year, so... Thanks again for uh, hopping on the Skype and thank you chatting with us. And I uh, want to remind everybody that uh, you can head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com to request a review. And if you wouldn't mind, head on over to iTunes and leave us some positive feedback. We greatly appreciate it. And that's it. We're out. Another one in the books. We'll be back next week with another episode. Dig me out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Say